This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. We're here to discuss the future of poop. And with me, as ever, are uh, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. Mark, you bravely said before we began recording, I don't care how you introduce me this week because you're in a bit of a grump, aren't you? And we've discussed mental health readily on this and we've discussed our (laughs) approaches. And I think I'm putting it out there in case the listeners detect a twinge this week. Somebody's got his grumpy knickers on, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wow, what style? Are, what style are the grumpy knickers? They're they're fed up of lockdown. Small child who only ever wants mummy waking me up at five o'clock and abusing me. Uh, there's a, a number of technical issues. There's a lot of pro bono work free. There's the fact I can't go anywhere. I have a pint, and I've just and, I'm, and the fact I'm going to be fifty on the weekend, and it's all just like ah. So I'm just having a day of grumpiness. That's that, but thanks for putting that out there, John, because that's made it so much better, me now telling our audience. You will. Moment, well, you've told your audience you're 50. I don't doubt you'll get some nice messages about being 50. They'll go, yeah, all those messages say, really? I thought you were much older. <laughs> <laughs> in the way you talked about us in the death episode, John, everybody must have thought by the end of that we were pretty much knocking on the, on the Grim Reaper's door. So you've got a lot of work you're not getting paid for. Brings me to the emails. Uh, we've had an email from <laughs> Beth who says, could you advise me um, on what I should do with my future? She really enjoyed the Client Earth no, episode. Send us a send an invoice. Send a, I'll invo- we'll invoice you. Send us some money. Then we'll tell you what you can do with your career. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's before we get to Beth's PS, which was I have read Only Planet and thoroughly enjoyed it, Ed, with numerous oh. people asking to borrow it now. Don't worry, Mark. Your books are on the shelf and they'll be read next. Have you got any further messages for Beth? I think that's the first time anyone's actually read mine before they've read Mark's. So I take that as a kind of as a sign that the tide is turning. That sounds to me like Beth is somebody who likes to do things in alphabetical order, which will sort of, you know, put her in John's favour. I think that's all that's happening there. It's she likes, you know, Ed Gillespie's before Mark Stevenson, and she's saving the best for last. Actually, Beth, talking about Client Earth, I've been made global ambassador for Client Earth uh, this week. Uh, that's all pro bono work, so I'm not getting paid. So I, don't <laughs> yeah, I don't see why you should. <laughs> what I want to do with you in this mood is sack off the podcast, go and get my CD collection, and just read you every title and see at what point you break (laughs) Um, so 
we do have a, a lot of emails. Thank you for all your... The Client Earth uh, episode uh, went down very well, and Death last week. Thank you for all your um, thoughts on Death, including Chris, who, who listens to the podcast on his daily walk along the river, which is a, it's a lovely thought, isn't it? Um, and he wanted to ask uh, opinions on organ donation, which is something we didn't talk about, but a way of living on after you die. Yeah, a friend, well, actually, I've got a very good friend of mine who, uh, who donated a kidney, uh, and she's still with us. She did live organ donation. Wow. And I know that sounds like a Monty Python sketch, but I, I, I believe the story goes that she was going to donate it to a relative who sadly died. But having committed to doing the donation, she then decided to give it away uh, to wow. a stranger and, and had the operation. And so she now only has one kidney. But how about that for altruism? What a legend. That is very impressive. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, you know, I think organ donation is a really, really great idea. And then I also have that queasiness about, you know, somebody chopping me up and taking me organs off and, you know. After you're dead, though, right? Yeah, after I'm dead. But, you know. It's not when you get to 50. They're not coming on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> then that might, might never have been no use to anybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and now here's a question that... I wanted to ask. Uh, it's put by uh, Johnny Stockwell of Johnny and Rose. They also have enjoyed the podcast and have been recommended it to their friends. They need a new car. They don't want to have a car. They're on board with getting rid of cars, but they, for work, have to have one car between them. Do they buy a new electric vehicle and contribute to the emissions from the new car building industry, or do they buy a used petrol car and use a car that already exists but will emit more over its lifetime. What do you think? I, I think it's a false binary in some ways. I mean, actually, they're right because uh, uh, about a third of the emissions of a vehicle over its lifetime are in the construction and manufacturing. About a third are in use and about a third are actually in the decommissioning So and getting wow. and scrapping. And so, I, th I mean, I would say, actually, you'd probably even better try to get a second-hand electric because there are an, uh, enough of them out there now. And a mate of mine uh, back in Suffolk has just bought a second-hand Nissan Leaf. So you don't actually have to go brand new. Wallop. I mean, the key thing, though, is working out um, exactly what sort of mileage you're going to be doing. Uh, mm. And actually, there's a huge difference then. If you are an obligate car user, you don't have an option and you're going to be running up lots of miles, then clearly an electric car will be much better, uh, assuming, of course, that you're going to be charging it from a renewable energy tariff. So it's going to be charged by wind or solar or other renewables rather than uh, the kind of the ambient grid mix. So that's what I would say. They're also not light for light because electric cars tend to last a lot longer yeah. than uh, cars run on internal combustion. Engines. Simply they've got far fewer moving parts, a lot less friction and whatever. In fact, you know, we're looking now at the million mile drivetrain. Um, which means that you know per mile you're looking at a quarter of the cost of running that thing of its of its lifetime. So um, yeah, I think the the point about how many miles you're going to do, if you're going to use it a lot. Um, it's a bit like it's a bit like the fashion episode, isn't it? Basically, when we talked about you know should I buy a piece of clothing or not? Well, if you're going to wear it thirty times or more, then yes, buy it. And if you're not, mm -hmm. then you know go for the second hand option, or you know wear something you've already got. That's why people ask you for free advice. You've nailed that. So you've made a rod for your own back there, Grumble Bump, because you're going to get more of them next week. <laughs> I, before we go on, I just do want to apologise to Beth because she did actually have a question there and she lost it in my grum. What, what, what was the question? <laughs> oh, you want to go back to Beth now, who hasn't read your book and isn't going to pay you for your advice. This Because yeah. you're, you're a good man, Mark Stevenson. So she says, um, I wonder if you could offer me some advice. My friend listens to prog music, which I consider to be dog shit. How can I break the news to her? <laughs> 
Um, no, she doesn't. She says. <laughs> I, can, I can literally hear that forming in your brain as you say it. It's awful, isn't it? You can smell it in here. Um, I've just listened to the Client Earth special and hearing about other people writing in to ask for career advice, and I'm jumping on the bandwagon as I'm indeed. I finished my A-levels last year, deferred going to university because she didn't want to do it virtually. Now she's had a break from study and she's thinking more in depth about her future options, whether university is the best option to get into geography, environmentalism, conservationism, etc. She's looked into degree apprenticeships. She wants to be an environmental practitioner. She doesn't have the right A-levels. She needs to get into those, to get into those fields, she thinks she may have to go to university, but she's not necessarily sure that's the right thing. But what do you think? Ed, you've got to answer this one because you've been through every nook and cranny of the environmental world and not all of them have been pretty. (laughs) (laughs) She says, and this is nice, I realise you are not career advisors. I value your opinions and I would be grateful for some insight. See, I'm not 100% convinced that you need a degree these days. I was just reading that interview with Bill Gates uh, in the media this morning, you know, and he's obviously famously a Harvard dropout. Um, went off and started Microsoft and didn't finish his degree. And I wonder, actually, the way things are going at the moment, you are better off uh, perhaps doing your kind of your self-schooling and tutoring um, and trying to go and get involved in some way with an environmental entrepreneur of, of some description. So go and work out what particular area you want to work in um, you know whether it's whether it's energy, food, travel, whatever, um, and and try and find where the kind of really fleet of foot startups um, are in that space uh, and go and get involved because I think you run up such a massive student debt these days, which you know our generation was privileged not to have to do, and I think it's scandalous that we we put that burden onto young people now. Um, that I think you're probably better off trying to go and get some kind of internship and some practical experience um, with business which might actually then become exponential growers uh, and then you'd be actively part of the change from the word go. What I've always found uh, with you know, entrepreneurs I've worked with or things I've been involved with, you know, you can you can learn a lot of the stuff on the job and what you can't really learn is attitude and engagement. So if you've got attitude and engagement and can approach people, they're likely to value that much more highly. Now, that doesn't work for every profession. Obviously, it doesn't work for brain surgery. You don't just turn up at theatre and kind of go, oh, quite fancy brain surgery. I'm really passionate about it. Can I have a go? They're not going to, you know, so if you want to be a brain surgeon, I suggest going to medical college. But for stuff, if you want to get into stuff that, you know, isn't an an immediate safety problem, then I, I think, you know, any route is valid. If you go to university, then get involved with local environmental groups or find find local entrepreneurs, you know, building those kind of businesses around you. But, but you know, don't think that the studying is going to get you there. It'll be the doing that gets you there. And uh, no amount of I've got a degree in really helps at the end of the day. I mean, you know, what I do now is nothing related to my degree. And um, I don't have a degree in prog rock, and but I'm brilliant at that. <laughs> Bang on as well. It's not just Bill Gates as well. You know, I, I dropped out of my degree, and now I tell dick jokes and do anagrams for a living. So, you know, there, there are many paths open to those who choose to lock off the gravel. Um, so let's move on to this week's podcast. Uh, as our listeners will be aware, we begin by asking if we're fucked. Welcome to new listeners uh, who might not be aware. We have a basic uh, three-question structure. Are we fucked? Why are we fucked? And how do we unfuck ourselves? We'll always end with optimism. We'll give you some advice for things you can change. Welcome if you're here as a result of the Adrian Charles interview this week. I'll tell you what, lads, I've learned a valuable lesson this week. If you do an impression of someone on the podcast... 
you might go on their show and they might play that impression back to you. Um, so apologies to Adrian <laughs> Childs and all the people of the Midlands. It's something I was talking to Lorraine Kelly about this week. Um, and she said to me, well, John, you know, look out for that. Um, and we had a great chat. I'm basically trying to get on the Lorraine show. I was just going to say, are you now just thinking this is some kind of voodoo that if you do a really bad impression of somebody really famous interviewer, they'll then ask you on to talk about the podcast. Can you do, uh, can you do Graham Norton for us? Oh, yes, that's a great idea. PR in reverse. I'll do the impression and they'll have to get me on to justify the awful thing I've done. Well, yeah. now, John Richardson. Uh, oh, I've gone on Henry Kelly, I think. <laughs> Um, who am I? I was born in Sweden in 1804. Um, there we go. Graham Norton That's there. That's Graham Norton. Yeah. And goodbye to all uh, our listeners in Ireland. Thanks for being with us this far. Uh, we've enjoyed your company. So from talking shit to talking about shit, uh, we are here to discuss the future of poop. Um, it's one of those, a little like uh, fashion. I, as a as a layman, I'm not aware of the gravity of the situation uh, because I guess I live a comfortable life. I go to the toilet, I push a button, the toilet goes away from me, I move on with my life. Talk to me about uh, poop and are we fucked? Take it away. Well, I mean, globally, we actually got a massive poop problem because uh we're still having an enormous number of people who practice what we might call open defecation uh, and so the world health organization estimates that about two billion people don't have access to the basics and as a result about four hundred thirty thousand people die every year from something as basic as diarrhea now that is huge because that is basically it, it affecting the lives of up to 1.4 million children alone, which is more than measles, malaria, and AIDS combined. And so it's also not just those acute effects either. It's the chronic effects where we have underweight women uh, who give birth to underweight children, which leads to all sorts of growth stunting and weaker immunity and vulnerability to infection. Uh, and they say up to 40% of Indian children under five suffer some degree uh, of this weakening. Uh, and so it is sort of scandalous in the fact that we're fucked because we can land a spacecraft on Mars and now n multiple nations seem to be jostling uh, for positions to be able to do that. Yeah, we can't fix this most basic and affordable of human issues. Yeah, if, it was, if you were to spend money fixing a problem, then this is probably one of your best bangs for, a, for, for the book. But unfortunately, it's not sort of seen so much by the people who hold the hold the positions of power or the money. So you know, you you find, you know, these ridiculous statistics where you know nations are spending you know four hundred times on their military than they are on their sanitation because it's just it's not it's not up there in the in the minds of the people uh, it should be. No, it's a weapon. It's a weapon of mass destruction, basically. I mean, you've got about 50 different communicable diseases in, in one gram of human feces. Uh, so it has sort of devastating impact. Plus, you know, it, it, and let's bring it back to the UK a bit closer to home. Um, everyone in lockdown has been buying puppies and dogs. Um, there's about, guess how many tonnes a day uh, of dog poo generated in the UK, John? Very fact that you've asked me to measure it in tons is upsetting. I was expecting a sort of, I was expecting it in kilos, and I was expecting a big measure. Um, Fifty tons of dog shit a day. It's 
there's 3,000 tonnes of dog shit a day in Jesus the UK. Jesus Christ. And uh, it all seems know. to be in little bags hanging from trees in my area. Well, exactly. Um, well, the, I think one of the Scottish newspapers described the problem as increasing excrementally. Um, <laughs> and they described the kind of the bags in the trees as the hanging gardens of Jobilon. Well, that probably needs to be said, <laughs> probably needs to be said in a Glaswegian accent. It's like the hanging gardens of Jobilon. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was I think that was Deacon Blue's last album, wasn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it was like Billy Connolly was in the room. He'll probably want to interview us now, all of us, because of that. So that's good. Well, I imagine he'll be it'll be me, Lorraine, and Billy Connolly on this week's Graham Norton. <laughs> I'd be amazed if it wasn't. <laughs> but that made me think about has made me think about how you know uh, how we sit on our toilets, particularly in aeroplanes, all kind of crunched up. But we sit wrong on on our toilets as well, because we, we're very prim and proper, and we sit up. And actually, this leads to that massive incidence of diverticulosis and other problems of the lower bowel because there's not this kind of uh, smooth passageway because we're kind of all squatted up and bending our colons and all that kind of stuff so uh so as well as uh, all the other problems we're actually we're actually doing it wrong when we get to it in the west and and, and giving ourselves health problems simply by the way we're sitting yeah I, I realized in my sort of background reading to the show that do you know where there are two sphincters um and every, everyone obviously knows the the, <laughs> the uh, anti externus uh but there is apparently an anti internus uh, which operates unconsciously. <laughs> and obviously the anti externus <laughs> operates consciously, otherwise we get into terrible trouble. But the anti internus operates unconsciously <laughs> and sends a sample into the gap between it and the external anus, where a sensory nerve decides whether it's safe to poo, fart, or, or shart, if that's your style. Um, and if it's not safe, I, you know... I'm at work riding a motorcycle about to record a prog album. Uh, then the sample is sent back in. And if this happens too often and the, and the needs, this is the bit where it gets really quite poignant. If the needs of the inner sphincter are ignored, it basically sulks and shuts off, which is what leads to constipation. Wow. I tell you what, I'll get in there before, before John does, because obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get into the inner sphincter before John does. We need does. buzzers. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get there before John because you know, obviously, if you were recording a prog album, that requires an awful lot of shit, doesn't it? That's what you were going to say, wasn't it? That it would be la- it would be loud out freely and probably recorded. Is that that was what you were going to go for, wasn't it, John? Well, you right? know, all I was going to do is credit Ed on on saying the sentence. There are actually two sphincters, and not saying one's called Mark and one's called John, and they're both here today. So, <laughs> thanks for not doing that. Which one of us would be the the inner anus, and which one would be the outer? which is the sulky one? Well, well, judging by Mister Grumpy Knickers, you are the sulky one. Tonight. I'm the sulky inner anus tonight. I think we might be nightmares. I think we might both be internal sphincters, um, which makes me the real asshole. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, the other thing we should know in terms of why we're fucked is also the amount of water uh, that goes down the drain. I mean, in the UK, flushing the toilet is about a third of household water consumption, so up to around 50 litres a day. And this is also one of the reasons why we've got into this mess, is the solution to pollution has been dilution. Uh, That is basically the way we've we've managed it, i.e. stick it in the river, stick it in the sewer. Um, And so we've basically done it the wrong way. We've just gone by mixing our shit into our water supply, and it's daft. Well, I'll raise a glass to that. I was about to have a drink then. I'm not going to. (laughs) 
Right, from talking shit to talking about shit, we uh, every week have uh, a special guest to give us some more information. And Mark, I believe you're going to introduce our guest this week. I am. I am delighted to introduce the wonderful Rose George. She is the author of a book called The Big Necessity, The Unmentionable World of Human Waste and Why It Matters, which is the main reason we have her on the show today. But that book is part of a much wider and auspicious writing career, where I think it's fair to say, Rose, that you take seemingly mundane, prosaic or untouchable subjects and make them fascinating and vital. Uh, As well as The Big Necessity, Rose's books include uh, A Life Removed, uh, Hunting for Refuge in the Modern World, which is about exploring the lives of people displaced by war she's also written 90 percent of everything which is all about the shipping industry and the fascinating insights into how things move around the world her latest book is called nine pints a journey through the mysterious miraculous world of blood which is on my list not least because in that she talks about the origins of blood banks something without which i would be dead um you did a really wonderful ted talk about the research from your book which i think is you know over a million views now so that's uh, up there in the top ted talks um and you entitled it let's talk crap and obviously, when you're going to talk about sanitation, poo and all that kind of stuff, there's inevitable opportunities for humour. But I was just wondering, because you've probably talked about this a lot, what is the most overused sanitation joke that people use at you? And, and indeed, what is the best that you've come across when it comes to human waste processing? It, it doesn't tend to be jokes. It tends to be puns right. that people think I've never heard before you know, flushed with success. Oh, good one. Yeah. I actually, I don't mind them. I don't mind them at all because as far as I'm concerned, as long as we're talking about shit and sanitation, you can use all the puns you want. I'd rather that than not talk about it. Yeah, because indeed you, you you kind of end that talk basically with a rallying call saying, you know, I want you to go out and be informed and complain about the state of things because it's, it's pretty bad, isn't it? Which brings us on, I guess, to our first section. Are we fucked when it comes to sanitation? Are we fucked? No, no, we are not fucked. Not irredeemably, but is sanitation generally in a kind of fucked state? Yes. Has your answer to this question changed over the last, because obviously it's a few years now since you wrote the book, has it changed since the book was written? Do you feel that progress has been made or has it changed in the last year based on other threats to our existence? Um, It hasn't changed fundamentally, but it it has changed because things have changed and I mean, I wrote the book in 2008, and then I wrote a, an update to it in 2014. And things had improved by then, but I was just rereading all the statistics this evening, the latest statistics. And although there has been a lot of progress, for example, in India has had a pretty amazing campaign over the last, I think it's nine years, called the Swatch Bharat, which has been amazing. Um, and millions of toilets have been built. And But on the other hand, with population growth, it's kind of a moving target. And so you're still getting 800,000 kids dying from diarrhea, which is entirely preventable and entirely treatable. So they shouldn't be dying from something that stupid that, you know, in in developed countries we think is not really very serious. And, you know, the squits and the shits and the deli belly and all that kind of thing. I mean, when you can joke about it, then it means that you've probably got a handle on it. So things, yeah, things have improved. But just to look at it from another perspective, Look at us. Look at our. We we assume that we flush the toilet, everything works perfectly, but it really doesn't. I mean, our sewers are absolutely overloaded. They're leaking. Most water authorities have the legal right to dispense raw shit into rivers every week, and they do because it can't go anywhere else because there's too many of us, and because we're using six liters of water to flush the toilet every time. So that is not a sustainable model, but. 
there is no sign that that system, our modern, what we think of as a civilised wastewater system, there's no sign that that's becoming any more sustainable. No, it's true, isn't it? I was, I was looking at some of the recent reports. Only 14% of English rivers are actually rated good uh, in terms of water quality. And every single one failed tests on sewage discharge uh, and industrial and agricultural pollution. There was a, a fact I stumbled upon was that raw sewage was discharged 200,000 times uh, in 2019, primarily from stormwater overflows. Uh, and obviously, you know, we talk a lot about the kind of the big systemic challenges. And, you know, if we're looking at more climate related, you know, localised intensive storm discharges through, through these localised deluges, then that's only going to get worse, isn't it? We're going to get even more poo in our rivers and our beaches. Yeah, because of just of how, how sewers were designed back in the 19th century and the most famous sewer systems I've seen in London, which was uh, designed by Joseph Basil Jett. And it was an astonishing system and it cost an absolute fortune and he used many millions of bricks. And, and some of the sewers are really beautiful. I do recommend you visit them if you can. Not, not <laughs> at the busy times. So not at eight o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't go then. No, that's the joke, isn't it? Joseph Bazalgette built the Great London sewers to to kind of move the discharge further downstream from the centre of the city. So he made a fortune channeling shit out of our homes. And then his great-grandson, Peter Bazalgette, who founded Endemol, the kind of pioneers of reality television, made his fortune channeling all the shit back into them. <laughs> <laughs> so when Bazalgette did the system, he was really clear-sighted. He was an engineer, and I like engineers. And um, he allowed for 25% population growth so it had extra capacity but of course we are way beyond 25% growth in London and everywhere else and the other thing that he did was he decided to have sewers that would not separate wastewater sewage um, from stormwater so anytime it rains on the streets or whatever that water goes into the wastewater sewers and the system can be so easily overloaded, which is why you've got those 200,000 discharges of stormwater mixed with sewage, because there's just nowhere for it to go. There are more storms, there are more people, there are more toilets flushing, and there just isn't the capacity in the system. Wow. I mean, and when you think about how much poo we do, each of us does about half a kilogram a day, apparently. <laughs> and so that adds up to over 11 tonnes, basically, of poo per lifetime. So that's just each of us. You know, you, you times that by another 8 million people in London. It's a lot of poop, isn't it? It is. But I mean, if you can separate that poop from liquid, from urine and from all that clean drinking water that we flush it away with, which is um, kind of insane when you think about it. I mean, it made sense in the beginning, but it's kind of stupid to uh, take something clean, like clean drinking water and then dirty it with shit and then spend a lot of money cleaning it again. Mm -hmm. um, so if we could separate the liquid from the solids, it actually wouldn't, I mean, you'd have to deal with the shit, but it's like composting. You, you could probably compost it and it would reduce quite quickly. That's the thing, isn't it? Shit's not waste. No, I mean, you know, back, back in the day, our rich and fertile soils in Europe meant that our human year, if you like, wasn't actually seen necessarily as a useful resource. But if you go somewhere like Japan, where soils were poorer, actually what, you know, what we call night soil was seen as valuable. And they even had used to have disputes that broke out over the price rises and the rights to collect it. Landlords even had the rights over their tenants' shit. Yeah, Desperate did. farmers e even stole shit yeah. uh, to put on their land. There were gangster shit collectors. There was a woman <laughs> in China who was known as the shit queen. And she, was, she had this amazing mafia of, of shit collection. She became extraordinarily famous and rich. Because it was, see, it was really prized. But 
I have to disagree with you a little bit because we did use it in Europe in the 19th century. It was really widely used. And until flush toilets came in, there was, that was pretty much one of the main ways of disposing of it. So there were sewage farms. And, and when the sewers were brought in, um, Karl Marx, for one, said it was, a, it was an enormous waste of money to throw all that sewage into the Thames rather than use it for useful things like growing stuff. But this strikes me as quite interesting because we talk quite a lot about um, different economic models and, and circular economy. We had Kate Rateworth on here earlier in the series. And it strikes me that in one way you could see the, the sewage system as this wonderful modern invention that's, you know, advanced society and all sorts of things. And at the same time, there's a fundamental flaw in its design, which basically says you're throwing away value by the way you've designed it because you just haven't thought about the circularity of how that stuff could be used. You're kind of just treating it as waste. And I think I can't remember which environmentalist said it, but the human being is the only animal with a concept of waste. You did no other animal thinks that stuff is waste. It all gets used up by nature and regurgitates. And we kind of we kind of waste our waste. It's meta waste. Yeah, it's, it's waste squared. Yeah. Talking of waste squared, is it true, Ed? I think you found this fact out that wombats have square shit. It certainly is. Uh, wombats do square poos. They couldn't work out why they were cube-shaped for years. And actually, I've stumbled upon... I, I, I remember ruminating on this when I was in Australia, when I read about it originally. And then I actually saw a news report this week which said scientists have worked out, because obviously a wombat doesn't have a square bum. Um, so it's it's got nothing to do with the bum. But it's actually to do with clever intestinal compression um in the in the lower intestine which compresses it into the cube shape and it's thought to be about poo not rolling away to, so they can mark their territory more effectively see using poo for useful things <laughs> exactly exactly or you can build a small house for a, a rodent a poo glue a poo glue <laughs> I don't want to count it as evolution that poo doesn't roll away. I, I, you know, I'm with David Attenborough in the in the wonders of nature, but shit that does not inherently get further away from you does not seem like a step forward no, to me. You're right. We should we should be far away from shit because it can carry so many horrible diseases. So that's why the toilet is a genius invention. But how did we get? Because I, I remember this in the past when we talked about some people think that farming is one of the great problems we had because that's when we all sat in one place and grew monocrops and things and a sort of rudimentary understanding i have is that the sewer system of london is one of the great achievements of society and then for what you're saying that was actually the start of the problem we have now should it have been designed better from the start or is it just that we've, we've sort of left it because it worked and we've now reached a, a crisis point where is it too expensive to fix? It should have been designed differently it should have been a separate system so it should have had separate channels for stormwater and and a separate one for wastewater and then that wouldn't we'd be in a different situation now because we'd have more capacity and we wouldn't have creaking falling down sewers but on the other hand it was an amazing marvel of engineering and it did massively contribute to reducing child mortality for example because kids would routinely die of dysentery cholera everything everything associated with poor sanitation because if you take one gram of shit there are there are so many viruses and bacteria and eggs that can live in that that it's very if you get any in your food or your water or on your fingers or on your feet or whatever which you probably will do if you are living in close quarters with your shit um and what the sewer system did is remove us from our excrement which was a massive public health achievement but environmentally it wasn't. It's also that we stick a whole bunch of the wrong things down the drain, isn't it, as well, though? 
I mean, you know, the stuff that it's not just the the bits of from our bodies that go down there, but the baby wipes and the sanitary products and the you know, the other chemicals and the fatbergs. The, the biggest one was in Whitechapel, so it was two hundred and fifty meters long, weighing one hundred and thirty tons. And do you know what they do with fatbergs once they've chipped them out? Convert them to biodiesel, believe it or not. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's good. You can actually put it to good use. But um, the one particular one in Whitechapel cost two million quid with a team of. Uh, blokes i presume working seven days a week for two months to remove it and they put a fragment of it in the museum of london and it became one of their most popular attractions which really does prove the fact that people will pay to see any old shit (laughs) (laughs) yeah i um i once went down a sewer um just off gray's inn and uh, it was a basil jet sewer so there was this beautiful brick staircase going down and the really nice thing about sewers is they don't generally smell because there's shit in them, but there's so much water that you, they really don't smell. So we went down this sewer and then we just couldn't because it was the staircase was absolutely blocked by fat. It was disgusting. It was dripping uh. off the ceiling. It was, And the flushers, the uh, sewer workers, they hate fat. They don't mind shit, but they hate fat because it gets in their pores and, and they can't wash it out and oh, they think it's horrible. So please do not... Put fat down your drain. No. Do not rinse out your pans. What do you do? What do you do with it? Put it in the bin. You wipe them with a kitchen towel and put it in the bin, or go and pour it on the ground somewhere at the soil. Okay, I feel like I've been admonished, but I'll, I'll take I'll take it on. I mean, I keep it in a little cup, most of us by the by the oven. We're talking about the the fat, not your poo. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I don't keep that in the kitchen. That would be insane. I keep it in the living room where it can be admired. <laughs> Um, let's talk beyond our the sort of UK system then, because I, I still think broadly, globally, we've got it quite well here. Where do we rank in terms of, obviously, there'll be places that have no proper sewerage. Are there places that are way ahead of us in terms of their system and how efficient it is and how good it is? Well, it depends whether you think uh, the sewer system is a good system. Ooh, controversial. Right. So, see, there used to be something called the sanitation ladder. And at the top of the ladder was what we have, which is waterborne sewerage, expensive, big engineering projects. And then you go all the way down to, say, a pit latrine or something. But that's not actually appropriate anymore because there's so much wrong with our system that although before, you know, the World Bank and everyone used to just go around the world um, giving people money to install systems like ours, but you end up with sewers that lead nowhere or lead into a river or wastewater treatment plants that don't work or because it's not just about carrying the shit away you've got to do something with it when it gets to wherever it's going and so you can have really good systems that look nothing like what we've got but they work fine for the particular situation which could be a pit latrine with a banana tree planted in it when it's filled up but that's not that's not feasible in an area like London, is it? I mean, I guess there reaches a, a size of city where you do have to ultimately get the shit away from a massive area, don't you? London couldn't have a system where it all gets saved and used within the M25. Yeah, no, it couldn't. But although, the, you know, the world is mostly cities now, I mean, majority city dwellers, but that leaves nearly half the world that isn't so so globally then why why have we got to the position because albeit our system is not the best and is not the most efficient and we've, we've sort of talked about some of the problems inherent in it nevertheless we've had it for almost two centuries how has it not reached how, how do we still have a state where so much of the world doesn't have any sanitation given that 
it seems quite an easy thing to have solved. Two main reasons, I reckon, is one that people are really weird and not rational. So you can give someone a toilet and they may still carry on going into the woods to have a shit because they like the rustling leaves or the toilet's not very nice or things like that. Um, The second reason is that politicians and funders don't think that sanitation is worth much. So they don't think it gets votes, which is not true. Um, And they think that people, there's no demand because people don't like talking about toilets and shit. So funding for sanitation is like way, way, way below clean water uh, provision, whereas you can't have one without the other. So what's your take on um, the other WTO, the World Toilet Organization, and and Mr. Toilet, Jack Sim? What's your view on his Mm. escapades over the last 20 years? Oh, he's brilliant. What are his escapades? Sorry, I don't know. Can you tell us what his escapades are? So the other WTO is the World Toilet Organization, not the World Trade Organization. And it's founded by this um, wonderfully warm-hearted but slightly eccentric Singaporean guy called Jack Sim, who dubs himself Mr. Toilet. And he spent the last... 22 years sort of going around the world just to try to address that point that rose was making that actually people don't invest in toilets but he says my job is not to build toilets but to inspire everyone to build their own so what what you're saying rose i think is a lot of it is cultural in that um we don't talk about it or we think other people don't want to talk about it so everybody's being silent about something that we should all be talking about because we all do it it's something that is completely universal we should be addressing it you know like adults um and yet somehow because of social mores or whatever we kind of avoid it and that leads to actually some rather massive systemic problems is, is that what you're saying yeah and I, really i blame the flush toilet because when we all got nice clean toilets that we could have in our houses and privacy, so a locked door, and we kind of stopped talking about it. So if you go back to, say, before that, so the 18th or 17th century, Samuel Pepys, for example, I mean, people used to live in really close quarters with their shit, which was terrible from a public health perspective. So Samuel Pepys went down into a cellar and put his foot in the pond of his neighbour's turds because his neighbour's latrine had overflowed. But he he wrote about that quite freely because, you know, they were just living with shit. And we've just gone to another extreme, whereas I think it's improved in the last 10 years. It's improved enormously. I mean, I would never have expected when I was writing my book to see Matt Damon doing adverts with toilet seats hung around his neck. And it's just fabulous, brilliant. And um, I do think things have improved a lot, but on a administrative political level that demand is still not being voiced and so the funding is still not being given because there is no pressure so there is this massive disparity in funding and that's if you don't have the funding then um and i I agree with jack sim uh, because we're old friends but that doesn't mean i have to agree with him but i do agree with him that you know it would be great if everybody went out and built their own toilet but they don't even if they can afford it sometimes they don't they instead they want a smartphone or a and that really annoys me actually when people say there are more smartphones in the world than toilets well of course there are because it's a lot easier to go and get a smartphone and you can uh, show off your smartphone but nobody shows off their toilet and so it's a really pointless analogy. Yeah. But as you say, we, we sort of discuss it to a point and then there comes a point where you don't really want to know exactly what someone's doing when they're in there. Yeah. I mean, you don't want your partner to come out and say, oh, you know, I've just done a really, you know, sloppy one or, or whatever. But but I guess you're saying that we should really, we should discuss our... 
Oh no! I, I mean, I I fool. <laughs> no, no, no! I don't want to know what my partner did in the toilet, which is weird because I'm I'm you know taboo breaking. We've got to talk about shit. But if my partner came out and told me what kind of shit he'd done, I'd just I'd just shrivel up in the corner. So that's we're really socialized to be really embarrassed and ashamed about it, which is understandable in a way but you know the only the only people who are really good at talking about shit with no shame are children until we educate mm. them out of it mm. well i've just we've just uh toilet trained our daughter so we've had uh, probably discussed shit more than any household in the country over the last few months in our house but shouldn't you shouldn't we be talking about it because in terms of like signifiers of your general health isn't gut health one of the most important things to look after and one of the best signifiers of that is what's happening in the toilet so you probably should come out and say that didn't feel right or do yours look like this or i've found as a, as a gentleman who you know my regular job back in the olden days was to go into pubs and try and make people laugh and as a result of some of my own nerves i would visit that room of the pub about 10 minutes before i'd go on and I've found fecal matter on toilet bowls in positions that has frankly blown. I do, I've still, I've seen it in places that I don't understand how it got there unless the person was moving while they were doing it or took a run up and slipped. <laughs> and I want to reach out to that person and say, you're not well. There's something, you shouldn't be out watching a gig. You need to go and see a doctor because it shouldn't come out with that force or at that angle. <laughs> So should we be talking about those details more? Well, I think you should actually become some kind of shit ambassador and, and yeah, on those grounds. <laughs> I will, I'll go on stage and talk about it. Don't worry. My first 10 minutes, somebody in here has a problem. <laughs> but seriously, no, you are. Yes, you, we should. We should discuss our shit, but I don't. Do as I say, not as I poo. <laughs> Well, it's fu- it's funny because I actually I actually when I was we were discussing this episode the other day, and then I was cycling through Brixton, and I saw a bus shelter with a huge poster on it with the strap line emblazoned across the middle saying "Brixton, how do you poo?" Uh, and I actually stopped the bike and went, "What earth's this about?" And it was exactly what you're talking about, John. It was basically um, uh, images of various different types or shapes or consistency of poo um, with different names. So you've got one which is sort of looks like a, a German sausage, which is called the smooth criminal. You've got one <laughs> which is fragmented, which is called the pea shooter. And the, the worst one, which was the slightly runny one, was called the smashed avo. I mean, it's like that's enough to put you off your, your hipster toast for life. Let's move on to... Um... Fecal transfusions. Yes. <laughs> well, that's exactly what it sounds like, is it? You get someone else's poop, and that's good because... So if you've if you've uh, screwed up your gut bacteria, then you can get a dose of other people's healthy bacteria, and ideally, it resets you. Wow! So presumably there are donors yeah. who are told your shit's amazing, your guts are fantastic. Yeah, I did. A, I did a story on it recently, and I went to a stall bank in uh, Birmingham. Right. So is there a service now where you can get your your gut analyzed and if so they then prescribe you know oh you need some john richardson poo or you need some egg gillespie poo or you need some rose george poo they can kind of like match you to the right poo donor um they can but there's only one condition you're allowed to get it on on the nhs but privately there are lots of clinics offering it for all sorts and i also interviewed a woman who does it herself so she gets a friend to come around and um then she just puts it in a blender and then 
syringe and squirts it up her backside. It's not Clostridium difficile, is it? Yeah, I think it's C. diff. Finally, I knew something. I'm a series and a half in. I feel like I've finally justified my existence here. And what a show um, to do it on. <laughs> yeah. I now retrospectively realise how quiet I was during the economics episode. <laughs> he's found his forte. John drops his Clostridium difficile bomb. <laughs> it feels like there were obviously... Our understanding of this topic has come along and we always end the podcast trying to be upbeat about the future and, and as we call it, how we unfuck the situation. So do you mind talking a little bit sort of locally here and globally about the positive steps that we, we can and should and maybe are taking to make things better? Yeah, I think there are lots of positive things. Um, one of the major positive things is India has always had awful sanitation statistics and you know it was so bad that Gandhi said, uh, sanitation was more important than independence. And they've had various campaigns over the years, government-led campaigns, to stop the millions of people who are doing open defecation. And none of them have particularly worked. So, and lots of toilets have been built and not used because they weren't very good and they didn't have doors or roofs or anything you know, like that. Um, but there has been a campaign recently, um, the last decade, pioneered by Narendra Modi, who is a complicated figure, um, but in terms of sanitation, he's he has been extraordinary and um, it's really done amazing things. And they've built millions of toilets. I don't know the exact figures, but they've built millions of toilets. They've, they claim that they have reduced open defecation. So they've now got sanitation coverage in rural areas up from, I think, 25% to about 90%. Wow. Which is amazing in 10 years. Mm. I mean, those are government figures. And again, you can count the toilets, but it doesn't mean people are using them. So there are those questions. But on paper, it just seems a really, really, really huge and encouraging achievement. But also what they did was they had this amazing network of, um, well, they used a lot of technology. And so they had dashboards and databases. And even in really rural areas, they would have government officials communicating on WhatsApp and making really use of that side of India, which is, you know, real technological prowess, but to solve its really shit side, which is the shit. Um, so that is really encouraging, but it costs an absolute fortune. Um, and it's it's difficult to know whether it can be replicated. So around the world, what you tend to see are pockets of really interesting stuff going on but which may not go to scale or, or be reproducible anywhere else. And of course, Bill Gates has uh, got his Reinvent the Toilet campaign, which got a lot of attention a few years ago, which is various people around the world trying to invent a toilet that uh, costs very little to run per day and has some kind of self-contained waste treatment process. So you don't need to have that huge sewerage infrastructure which is very difficult to maintain and they're still working on that but you know it is it's kind of encouraging locally over here well they're building a massive new sewer in london which uh costs billions and will probably last 20 years and then they'll have to build another one. <laughs> what about the personal we, we, we sort of always end by saying if, if you could you know you are speaking to our listeners you know one at a time but if you could urge one person to say this is the thing I wish you would change in the subject of shitting, be it how you shit or where you shit or who you tell about it. What what would you urge them to do going forward? I would say that if you can 
use less water. So try and minimize your water use because it, it really, you know, with wastewater, what we are wasting is water. And I know that sounds cute, but it, it is true that we don't need to use all that water. But you obviously, the way the system works, you do need it to flush. But you don't necessarily need to flush for every pee. So if it's yellow, let it mellow and just try and reduce water use and just be more mindful of it. That's all I'd say. And do not, do not ever flush or pour oil down the sink. And 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 if you if you really don't want to have fecal particles on your toothbrush, then put the lid down when you're flush. Wow. Wow. That's a big that was a big end. <laughs> I've got to ask you, what about toilet twinning? Uh, do you have a view on that where people sort of twin their toilet and send some money off and apparently build a toilet somewhere else in the world? Is that a good idea or is that a bit? Yeah, highly encourage it. Anything that raises the profile of toilets and the fact that there aren't enough in the world and that we really need to address the terrible state of sanitation, I am fully in favour of all of it. My, I actually caught my daughter the other week, though, who's three and a half, merrily cleaning the toilet bowl with my toothbrush. So I mean, I closing the, <laughs> lid, closing, closing the lid of the toilet would be like closing the stable door after the horse has bolted, because essentially she was <laughs> singing away to herself. Uh, and I was like, Claire Faye, how long have you been doing that for? I've <laughs> 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 been cleaning the litter and then just popping it back on the shelf for me to clean my teeth that night. Oh my yeah. She's a clever girl. She already knows that it's already covered in fecal particles. So exactly, it makes no odds exactly. if she uses it to clean the toilet. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, uh, Rose, thank you very much for joining us. I was thinking that you know, we've kind of really been talking about, you know, circularity and how we don't, how we treat waste. And I was reminded of a quote that you often use, Ed, which is uh, Blaise Pascal's, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And maybe what better room to sit alone in and contemplate the wonders of the natural circular economy than the than the toilet as you hopefully give back it's true jack sim does say that we should make the toilet the happiest room in the house and there is something there is something wonderful uh, about the experience i actually came across this as well from the house of beautiful business which was about the beauty of the moment it's saying don't resist find a sense of blissful relaxation even this moment can be elevating try sitting on your throne without your phone have your feet higher up towards you in a squatting position and will help you align with a line of energy flowing from the top of your head to the bottom of your sphincter exhale be open but don't push release but do not be attached to releasing the state of emptiness is the most profound. And that's doing your business beautifully. That was a party political broadcast by Ed Gillespie there. <laughs> the defecation party. Um, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, Rose. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rose. Honest. Thank you. So, a, a very pleasant afternoon. Where, where else can you get together and have a good old conversation about the shape of wombat shit and hear sentences like... My favourite thing about sewers and what I love about sewers. Nice to hear someone sort of wax lyrical about the beauty and odourless nature of a sewer, isn't it? Yeah, although um, I was skipping through my copy of Biomimicry and Architecture 2nd Edition uh, earlier. Um, Me too, mate. <laughs> Me too. Couldn't put the bloody thing down. By my by, my friend and genius, uh, Michael Paulin, uh, in that rather wonderful book, uh, which is all about how we can create you know, cities and buildings to mimic and act like the circular systems we see in nature. He says this little wonderful passage about the sewers and Bazalgette and how there was a competition that he won, but actually there, somebody else was going up against him, this, uh, uh, this chemist called Justus von Liebig. And he'd studied the Roman sewers and their efficiency in transferring vast 
vast quantities of minerals away from the soils into the what Michael rather bluntly calls the collective digestive system of the Roman Empire, and how they then put all that into the Mediterranean. And he said, look, he said to the British Prime Minister, says, if you adopt that system, you're going to take all these nutrients that could have been returned to the fields of Britain, and you know, you're going to basically be destroying the equilibrium and the fertility of the soils by this incessant removal of phosphate. So even back then, he was saying like, he's so so he was saying like, you you've got to create the system to be circular. But because basil jets was such a success in reducing cholera and public health, because it was a, a success in many, many ways. This work by Justice von Liebig is kind of uh, forgotten, but actually he was right. So that a lot of the headaches we've got now are a result because we didn't listen to the circular thinker back in the day. Um, and again, two, two very different views of the same thing about, you know, whether sewage is a, is a nutrient or whether it's waste. And I think there's something interesting about, well, Michael says this, you know, the idea that if you call something waste or a nutrient, you start to think about the system in which you use it very, very differently. And so in Basel Jet system, we're just trying to get rid of it. Whereas in Liebig system, we're like, well, why can't we use that? Um, and I think that's probably, you know, something we can all learn from. Because it seems to me that when we sanitize things, we remove things or try and get rid of them, then we stop really talking about them properly. And we do that not just with actual waste, but we do it with questions about violence or poverty or democracy. We try and sanitize them away from ourselves so we don't have to really think about what's going on and how we can do things in a more circular manner. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but I just wanted to, you know... I've got to say, I don't know, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was wonderful because I, I know and trust you, I didn't hear a word of it because all I was thinking, was, did you say that book was written by Michael Paulin? Yeah. Didn't he used to be in Minty Python? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. But it's interesting the point that Mark's making there. In the era of, like, we're doing track and trace now with COVID, and actually the kind of the original track and trace was uh, famously by John Snow, uh, you know, back in 19th century London, when they, they, they managed to trace uh, the source of a cholera outbreak to a contaminated pump in Soho, near to where the pub that still bears his name is today. And, and building on that sort of basil jet moment, it was then that, you know, they started to actually directly pipe water into people's homes. And that was also when our water consumption rocketed because before that, people used to have to pump the water and carry it back to their house. And it went from three gallons per person per day to up to 100. And it was also this which contributed to the kind of convenience of just washing your poop away. But as Mark said, you know, we we do have elements of this system already in place. Uh, We already produce about a million tonnes a year uh, of biosolids as an artificial um, fertiliser from human poop, uh, as well as uh, a significant amount of biomethane, which comes from um, sewage farm gas capture. So it's not like this stuff isn't happening already. You know, it's, it's a bit like the William Gibson quote that Mark and I often use, you know, the future's out there. It's just not evenly distributed yet. So this stuff can be done. And, and indeed is being done, you know, in piecemeal ways. And I think the big question that I think Rose sort of touched on as well is uh, we need to think like a system, not like a system. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, uh, but we need to re- better than the Michael pa- Palin joke. <laughs> <laughs> But we need to rethink and, re- and reinvent a lot of this stuff. You know, she referred to the sort of the sanitation ladder and how flawed that is to put the flush toilet, which uses gallons of water, at the pinnacle. Um, and indeed, you know, when you end up going for massively expensive, heavily engineered, you know, solutions, which is what 
uh, engineers tend to come up with, unfortunately. You know, I mean, she touched on the super sewer in London, you know, which is a four billion pound project. It's got 2,000 people working every day underground building this thing. It's taking best part of a decade to construct it and will probably be almost out of date and full of shit again by the time it's finished. And you wonder whether we're on that sort of, you know, it's a, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly type of problem because we're never going to be able to b- build big enough pipes to keep carrying it all away. And maybe, you know, at some point you have to hit that crossroads and go, no, we need to do something differently here. You know, plus in the era of climate change, water treatment is about 1% of UK emissions. Uh, it's about 2.4 million tonnes of CO2 a year. It comes from treating the water that we happily poo into. Uh, and so there's all you combine all those factors together, you think, hang on. We really should be doing something different with our shit. I know we're at the end, and we're, this, this is the bit where we're supposed to be optimistic, but how much do you think, because we did touch briefly during that conversation on cultural change and how if you provide a toilet, an indoor toilet, it might not be used because it takes a lot of time to shift people's thinking culturally. It was sort of spoken about in terms of the countries that have yet to receive sanitation. But in this country, when we talk about using our poo and making fertilizer out of it and things like that, how much in the sort of 200 years since you talked about landlords used to own their tenants poo and it used to be used, how much do you think we've changed to quite a clinical and unaware of our food society where actually there's a squeamishness if you were to say to people we're changing the way we deal with sewers and sanitation and most of your shit is going to be used to put nutrients back into the soil that you grow your food in do you think there's a risk people just would think i don't want other people's poo being near my carrots yeah i think it's probably a branding issue isn't it i mean we, we need to start you know stop stop referring to it like in this waste pooey type way and start you know celebrating the wonderful fundament that is our gift back to the circular economy well i mean if we were to rebrand shit as something you know more positive you know as a gift to the world how, what, what would it be i don't well, know I, how... said, I said i think i said it earlier human year human year yeah that's not bad i quite human like that year. I mean, I I visited my mate Lawrence, uh, who lives at a straw bale house he built in the woods. And he's actually got one of those sort of cartridge-based composting toilets in the house. You know, and when the the cartridge from the bag gets full, you just pop it out and it's in a biodegradable bag. And he basically just, you know, he lives in the middle of a woodland, so he just sort of throws it at the base of a tree. Uh, I did pop round one day last summer, um, <laughs> and he'd been driving his tractor through the woods and had accidentally driven over one of the bags oh, uh, and sprayed himself and the tractor uh, with all of his three kids and his wife's and his own poo. Um, and he sort of came in to wash his hands looking slightly sheepish. I said, what happened? He goes, I ran over a poo bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm busy the day that he wants us to go around. Um, oh, I hope I'm not one of those people. It was one of the, one of the things that, that shifted me to the vegan diet was the, the volume of shit. We touched on, on dog shit earlier, but the volume of shit created by the meat industry and where that goes, most of that, Mm. It doesn't even go in suits, just buried in huge, massive landfills full of sour pig shit that every now and again the smell is so overwhelming people just pass out and fall into them. I mean, it's a horrific, horrific thing. Yeah, um, although you can take all that waste and you can, for instance, turn it into um, into fuel. So you can take that gas, you can condense it, you can turn it into liquid fuel and you can reuse it. So again, it's you know, I think it's something like... 33% of Cornwall's climate emissions are actually methane from slurry pits. 
Jeez. Um, but that's being that problem is being fixed by um, my friends at Benjamin, who have yeah. devised a system to take all that well, waste and turn it into fuel to to power farms. So you create an a, a, an energy neutral um, off the grid farm by using its own waste. Positivity, the future <laughs> of shit. You're listening to John Richardson on the Future Thoughts. Um, so we move on to the the final section of the show, which is of course pointless futures. Do either of you have a, a nomination this week for the pointless future? Uh, me, going to be fifty. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the I'm weekend. sure Caroline will be delighted to listen back to this. Just uh, you know, just thinking about you know mortality. I've given the episode on death. You know, it's you know, it's I'm old. I'm bloody old now. I'm in lockdown. I can't have a party. So maybe my fiftieth birthday. There you go. How about that for a pointless future? See, I told you I was grumpy. Comedically, I'll go for it. I feel like the sort of ethos of the podcast is I should try and sort of dig you out of this mood and and make you realise all the great things that are still to happen. But it sort of ends the podcast, and it's quite funny if we just have your future as pointless. <laughs> yeah, they say they say forty forty is genetics, fifty is lifestyle. That's that's where that's how you look. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's Mark's future that is uh, pointless this week. Slightly <laughs> devastating, but hopefully next week uh, you'll be in a slightly happier place. I'm sure. Um, keep your. Uh, I mean, if you want to try and Mark and Ed each week offer salient advice and tips for looking after yourself and your mental health as well as uh, the future of the planet, if you want to return the favour and send nice things into Mark, then our email address uh, or contact details are here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. And worth pointing out, we, we read all your emails. We're grateful for all of them. I don't, because I find it slightly self-indulgent, read out all the thanks and all the personal messages. But if you've sent one, rest assured it has been read and appreciated. This podcast is important to us because it's important to you. Um, take care of yourselves, each other and the planet. And from myself, Mark and Ed, have a wonderful week. 